Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I've got, perhaps a little unexpectedly, interested in historical approaches to scripture, particularly the New Testament, but some other stuff as well. And when I've produced content on that, I've generally sort of adopted self-consciously what you might call a secular historical method, which is to say that I'm not asking what do, you know, do I think Paul is right in some ultimate um, religious sense? I'm not asking what it means for my life. I'm just trying to produce a reconstruction of what this person in history might have thought and said. Same for the historical Jesus. And in fact, that approach, I think, has generally been true for all of my guests who I've had on to discuss it. So someone like Dale Martin is himself religious, but he would say, when I'm doing history, I'm doing history. When I'm doing theology, I'm doing theology. But when you're talking about the historical Jesus, those two things kind of want to be kept in separate rooms, as it were. The construction you come up with of the historical Jesus might not and perhaps should not necessarily conform to the theological construction that you come up with. My guest today wants to challenge that, and I found this really interesting because in many ways I've just sort of taken that framework for granted. It's a framework I really like thinking within and I find really fun, but it's also kind of fun to have the framework that you've always just sort of taken as axiomatic challenged. Um, Johnny wants to argue, I'll let him do it in his own words, obviously, essentially for letting theology back in the room. And we get into it. I won't really give much more of an introduction than that. I think we lay out um, his background, where he's coming from, what his argument is in the conversation itself. I have questions, challenges, pushback at various points, and then we just really get into the nitty-gritty of, like, I guess you could say the philosophy of methodology. When we apply steps A, B, and C to a text, why are we doing that? What framework, what presuppositions, what prejudices or biases are underlying our assumption that X, Y, and Z are the correct methodological steps? I think that's just like a super interesting thing to think about, and that's what this entire conversation's about, essentially. So let's just get into it, and I'll just present the conversation and let you make up your own mind. Um, as always, and I'll be really quick with it this time, um, this podcast works on a suggested donation basis, so if you enjoy content like this, and particularly if you've been listening for a while... Um, consider chipping in to support it. All of the costs associated with it are covered by listeners. I don't do advertising in any way. And you can do that on patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Um, if you're not able to donate, and totally understandable, not everyone is, um, sharing it on social media is also a great way to support the show. And as always, big thank you to everyone who does either of those things. You're awesome, you're making the show possible, and I'm genuinely grateful. Thank you so much. Okay, 
With that as brief preamble, let's get straight to the discussion. This is The Historical Jesus with Johnny Rollins. Okay, I am joined today by Johnny Rollins. Johnny, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, thanks so much for having me. Cool, so I have your book, which I just complimented your cover on, which is very nice. It is it's a lovely cover, genuinely, and a Bible in case we need to look something up. Obviously, these are books of equal importance. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so this, this is your first book, right? Yeah, so this is um, a lightly revised version of my PhD thesis. So yeah, first book. Cool, congratulations. Thanks, appreciate it. Um, so how did you, um, I'll say like how I came across this and how I thought it would be interesting to do a conversation on it. Um, but how did how did you come to write this? What was like your, yeah, how did you come to write this? Like what, what drew you to this topic? Yeah, great. Um, so I, it's like I say, it's it's a revised version of my PhD thesis, which I did at the University of Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also at the University of Nottingham as an undergraduate student. Mm-hmm. When I joined the department as an undergrad, I would have characterised myself as a non-Christian, um, would have gone as far as to say I was an atheist. Um, found New Testament studies and historical Jesus research really interesting despite this. So I, I grew up in a in a Christian family, went to a Catholic church, went to a Catholic school until I was 16. Um, and so I was really interested in all of these questions about ancient history, how early Christianity sits within ancient history. Um, and so I did lots of modules with a professor called Roland Diners, who's no longer at the university, but was at the time and would go on to be my PhD supervisor. Towards the end of my second year, um, I became a Christian. And I realised that this act of me becoming a Christian, this event of me becoming a Christian, um, I felt like it was supposed to have an impact on the way in which I thought about history. Mm. So what history is, what the past is, the way the world works, and therefore how we are supposed to think about all of these things, or how I as a Christian was supposed to think about all of these things. And so I had this really jarring kind of third year of university where my whole worldview, my whole metaphysics, everything I thought about the world had been like radically disrupted. Mm. But in some ways I was expected to study the past and approach the past in exactly the same way as though nothing had changed. And this felt really odd and slightly uncomfortable for me. And it got me thinking about some of these issues of how should theology influence history? How should history influence theology? Um, And I was really fortunate because like I say at the time I was um, studying a lot of modules with Professor Roland Diners, and Professor Diners had just released a series of essays um, called Acts of God in History. Mm. And the first essay in this collection of essays is an essay about the way in which Christian faith, Christian theology should influence um, Christian historians as they approach the past, as they think about history. And so this is a real, um, a really important read for me, this essay. It got me thinking about some of these issues in in more depth. I went off and decided to do an MPhil at the University of Cambridge on nothing, on New Testament studies, but nothing really connected to any of these issues. 
then decided, because I'm a glutton for punishment, that I wanted to do a PhD. Um, and so when it came time to deciding what I wanted to do my PhD on, the thing I kept thinking about was how was my faith, if at all, supposed to influence the way I thought about history? And so I decided to go back to the University of Nottingham, um, do a PhD under Roland Arnaz and Connor Cunningham as well, who is still at the department. Um, and that ended up with the book that you've very kindly said has got a lovely cover. <laughs> yeah, so I found this, you know, people complain about Twitter and it does seem to be going down a bit of a weird path right now. It does. <laughs> but, um, no, I just sort of came across this on Twitter and I was sort of, um, as I was telling you before you came, before we hit record, I've been doing a reasonable bit on like um, historical approaches to the New Testament, a little bit with the old as well, but more with the new. Um, and I've interviewed people who are sort of very much within the um, traditional secular historical method approach to it, which is to say, regardless of if I'm a Christian or not, I'm going to approach this as history. Um, and I've done quite a bit of a, a certain amount of that myself. And I just sort of, you know, I've been meaning to interview someone on the historical Jesus for a bit, and I hadn't found anyone. And then I came across this book, um, which was sort of in part a history of the history of Jesus, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, and in part a methodological critique of the historical framework, which I've always just almost sort of taken for granted when I approach these questions. So I thought, okay, this could be interesting. And so I reached out to you and um, you agreed to come on. I guess like maybe one place to start is, like I say, the history of the historical Jesus, because a lot of people have written on this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I think depending on how you are defining your terms is what you are thinking of as, as writing about the historical Jesus. There's a, there's a case to say that, you know, the discipline is 2000 years old, right? If we, because that could include the gospels, that could include certain fragments of Paul and even Hebrews and things like this. So, but when, when we talk about the historical Jesus, well, I think the way I'm using that phrase, historical Jesus research, is we're really talking about kind of European post-enlightenment rationalist attempts to apprehend the quote-unquote what really happened when it comes to Jesus. So from like the end of the 18th century to the present day, something like that. Mm. Um, I've always had in my head when people sort of start these histories, and you start before it, but like Schweitzer tends to be given as like the founding figure in a lot of accounts of this, right? Yeah, so he's he's certainly like a a key figure. So the phrase "quest for the historical Jesus" comes from his book. It's, yeah. it's the subtitle of the um, the German original version of his book. Um, I think most scholars would want to go back further than Schweitzer um, right. to to Reimarus. Um, most people would say that Schweitzer is the end of what's called the first quest for the historical Jesus. So he's critiquing Reimarus and D.F. Strauss and Renan and people who have gone before him. Um, and we, we see a little bit of a drop off in activity about the historical Jesus after Schweitzer. But he's certainly one of the most dominant and important and influential people in the history of the discipline, for sure. Yeah. Is he a good um, maybe example of the approach that you're looking to sort of highlight and critique or highlight and say it shouldn't be exclusive, which is he's 
he's pretty insistent on like history should be history and like it doesn't you know the historical Jesus you construct may very well be something that doesn't mesh with like your own moral or even religious understandings and the one he comes up with if I understand him right he's kind of like a failure right Jesus meant for this big revolutionary thing to happen and then it didn't and he got crucified and that's kind of the story that he tells yeah yeah and again he's 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 not the first to to say that but he's definitely one of the most popular and one of the most influential this idea that that Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet mm-hmm. the, word, the word apocalyptic means all sorts of things in theology and religious studies in this context when we talk about apocalyptic we generally mean something like eschatological mm-hmm. um so uh, you know jesus was a prophet who preached that the end of the world would come mm-hmm. um, and for schweitzer the historical jesus thinks that um his death is going to bring about the end of the world and obviously he's wrong so he gets crucified and he's a failure history goes on and that that's where schweitzer ends up now he's he's still a christian schweitzer so he does have this tension of um the historical Jesus and what some theologians or scholars would call the real Jesus or the the theological Jesus or the Christ of faith, to mm. use Keller's phrase. Um, but Schweitzer's Jesus is much more of um, a kind of mythological existential figure. So he, he has this phrase at the end of his book where Jesus comes to us as one unknown, mm. this kind of thing, like a kind of figure in the mist who is not at all like the Jesus of history, but is still important for Christian faith. Um, yeah, that's that's where Schweitzer ends up in that position. Yeah. See, I I find that quite useful in a sense. In that I think you know within the historical method he's getting some stuff wrong there. But with that said, and even with the caveat that these words can mean a lot of different things, I find apocalyptic Jewish prophet a useful starting point. Like. I could talk much longer about this, but like apocalyptic Jewish prophet is like it's it's a good three words to maybe just get out from the sort of conventional story about Jesus that we have, which is sort of an amalgam of the Gospels, but then with a lot of additional stuff layered on top Um, and to try and sorry about that. And then to try and sort of just one recognize the sort of paradigm and the presuppositions you're bringing to the stories and to sort of give you a frame for like when you don't know what's going on or why jesus may have said or preached such a thing those three things kind of can help clue you in sometimes so like apocalypse that can mean anything but a lot of the sayings a lot of the stories if you think how does this make sense given that this person thinks the world is going to end that's that's almost always a fruitful starting point jewish we we think about this as intention now i don't think for the like you know that's a complicated story but the first christians would have seen themselves as jews and that's something to keep in mind and then prophet um, you know, you've got obviously this huge tradition from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Um, and a lot of the stuff Jesus does, like, he's just really in character for a Jewish prophet. Even the really bonkers bits are like, yeah, no, this is how these people behaved, you know? Yeah. Um, and I could give examples with all of that. But like, 
I find, yeah, and like, it seems sometimes like it seems a bit mundane. You do all this scholarly research and you end up with something as minimal as like apocalyptic Jewish prophet. But like, it's actually not, I don't think it's a horrible starting point, actually. No, so I, I would agree. I think it's not a bad starting point at all. My, um, I guess my, my one kind of caveat to that is that um, all of those three words can be very slippy. Yes. So apocalyptic, like we've talked about, can mean all sorts of things to all sorts of different people. Um, Jewish, Jesus is absolutely Jewish. And this is one of the the few things that pretty much every current active historical Jesus scholar will agree upon. This is kind of a non-negotiable in historical Jesus studies. But that raises the question of what kind of, of Jew was Jesus. Mm. And then prophet, again, I would agree with what you're saying about um, Jesus being a prophet. But, you know, if you got five biblical scholars in a room and said, do you think Jesus is a prophet? They might all say yes, but mean completely different things by that. No, I'd agree with all of that. Um, and then the words, that phrase is also an invitation to not just apply the words uncritically, but think, one, recognise the pluralism of meaning within them, mm. but two, sort of ask yourself, what do those words mean to me? And again, get get to that point where you're recognising that you're wearing a particular pair of glasses when you read this, and just try and notice what happens when you put another pair on. So, like, apocalypse to us, you know, I think for a lot of the writing in the ancient world, generally, um, and... Um, particularly in like this sort of intertestamental period from like when the last Old Testament book was written to the first New Testament one. Um, we kind of think of Apocalypse as either a sort of very divine cosmo cosmological type thing or earthly, like a meteor smacks into us or yeah. something, or, or human, like a nuclear war or something. Um, I think it's both for them, right? It's both a human and divine conflict um, because like the different peoples of the world have their different gods and like if the gods and the people go to war and everyone gets wiped out is that sort of thing and so anyway that's just an example of like the words apocalyptic jewish prophet are both a lens through which to view the world but also an invitation to sort of ask well actually what do those words mean you know yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. um so I mean, you, you sort of alluded to something in Schweitzer, which is like, yes, I'm a Christian, but like theological Jesus is just a different thing to um, the historical Jesus. Um, there, there's someone I know a bit. Um, I've interviewed him a few times. And he wrote a chapter for my book. It's Dale Martin. Um, and he's very like that's like his one of his like core bedrock, you know, approaches. What, if anything, is wrong with that as an approach? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there's not anything wrong with that approach. I think that's a, a completely reasonable and um, academically valid and legitimate position to have, and I, I don't have any problems with that. Um, I suppose my concern, um, and one of the things I kind of seek to highlight in the book, um, is when this um, this approach to history, so this this opposition of history and theology, um, 
it becomes the only means by which we can think about and study the historical Jesus mm. at, the, at the expense of alternatives. Um, and so again, if, if, if there are Christians who are academics and um, are trying to take up the traditional historical critical methods to think about Jesus, that's totally fine. I've got no problems with that. I've done that. Um, I've done that in, in print. I'm all for that. Um, but my issue is that, that trades upon a very myopic view of history. The word history is, again, is another word that can mean lots of things. So both history as the past itself and history as the study of the past. Mm. So in, in both of those the uses of the word then. And so what I'm trying to do in, in this this book, the Metaphysics of Historical Jesus Research, is to try and encourage the discipline to think a little bit more pluralistically, a little bit more broadly about um, the role that metaphysics and theology play when we do history. So when we are writing about the past and also to think about our metaphysics of what history is in the first place. Mm. So, you know, just really fundamental questions about what we think reality is. How do we think it functions? How can we apprehend it and make sense of it? And so I, I'm not, I hope I make this clear in the book, I'm really not asking anybody to stop doing anything. Mm. I'm really not saying that anybody needs to um, pack anything in. Um, but my concerns come when scholars start to tell other scholars that theology shouldn't enter into history. Mm. Because one of the claims I make in the last chapters of the book, the last chapter of the book, sorry, and we might go on to talk about this, is that this dominant traditional historical critical method or series of methods is itself a theological position. Mm. It, it emerges out of um, movements and posturings within the Christian tradition itself. Um, and so there is no such thing as a theological history, right? There is no such thing as theologically or philosophically neutral history in the sense of writing about history or even in the sense of what we think history is, as in the, what we think the past is. And so if that's the case, what I want is a is a much broader um, playing field for who can engage with this, the methods that can be used to engage with this, and not even just the methods, but the different frameworks for creating methods themselves. So let, let's start with maybe something that we agree on, um, and then we can maybe move to areas of tension. Yeah, I think I agree. History requires a worldview, right? Um, and there's no way of doing it without a worldview, and you just may or may not be self-conscious of it. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the time when you really get down to it, you're sort of just asking, do I find this plausible? Yeah. You know, do I find this plausible? Like... Let's let's think of an example. Um, Paul's description of a resurrected body in First Corinthians fifteen. Yeah. Really challenging read for a modern audience, but that's what he's claiming he saw with the risen Jesus. Do I find that plausible? Okay. Plausible, assessed against what? Yeah. Right. What am I? Plausible. I, I can't. I, I'm not just. I can't generate an answer to that question without some sorts of standards that I could bring to bear vis-a-vis -vis plausibility. You know. Um, 
Yeah, I agree certainly with that. Um, which is like the, uh, the the groundwork you're trying to do in the first half of the book. Yeah. Like you have to have a worldview. Um, do you want to come in there before I go to the bit with anything, any notes on that before I go to the bit where maybe we diverge? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think um, it's maybe helpful to just say a couple of words about the word worldview, because this is, um, I mean, the first half of, of the book is me just defining terms because there are loads of terms that are very contested and are used in ways that are um, maybe not necessarily entirely clear when you read historical Jesus scholarship or, you know, beyond historical Jesus scholarship as well. So um, when I'm using the word worldview in this book, uh, I'm talking about a series of metaphysical presuppositions that are being taken for granted when we assess new information about the world. So mm -hmm. metaphysical presuppositions being things like what exists, so literally just what is done, mm -hmm. um, time and space, um, their existence, how they function, how we apprehend them, things like causality, those kind of those kind of things are what I mean when I talk about metaphysical presuppositions. And again, the first proper chapter in the book is me talking about metaphysics and the way I'm using that word and uh, how it's functioning in the in the rest of my argument. Um, and I think you're completely right. Um, a lot of this comes down to notions of plausibility. So what do we find plausible? What do we find likely to be the case? And you're right, we have to assess plausibility against some kind of background for what we think is and is not plausible to have happened in the world. But this frequently happens at the uncritical level. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing, because I think this is just how humans think. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of um, uh, German philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer. Mm -hmm. so he's a philosopher of hermeneutics. And he, he talks about this in terms of prejudice. Mm. And he for, for Gadamer, prejudice isn't a negative term. Prejudice are just things that we take for granted in order to make sense of new information, in order to interpret a text or a piece of art or whatever, whatever that might be. Um, and Gadamer says that this is just completely unavoidable. This is just how we think. We have to take things for granted before we can think anything, and that's fine. And Gadamer says that the every epoch, every society, every culture has its own set of prejudices that are just taken for granted. And so for Gadamer, the prejudice of the Enlightenment, so this is would be the, the prejudice of the kind of the realm in which historical Jesus research takes place, is the prejudice against prejudices, which hmm. points out is itself a prejudice, right? <laughs> so that's such a that's such a bloody philosopher statement. <laughs> <laughs> the prejudice against prejudices, which is itself a prejudice. It's such a false yeah. thing to say. Anyway. No, no, it is. Um, but I, I, I find that really helpful um, because one of the things I'm trying to get across in this book is that I don't think there is any metaphysically and therefore theological neutral ground when we're thinking about history. Um, because, as you said, all, all this has to be done through a worldview, which mm -hmm. is a set of propositions about what the world is and how it functions. And that is necessarily both metaphysical and theological. Yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but. Okay, the word theological kind of irks me a bit there. In a sense, yes, right? There's no neutral position on 
is there a God? And again, what does God mean? Right? Like all of these words we could just spend another hour on. But like, yeah, there's no neutral position on that. Um, I wonder if, okay, how do I say this? I wonder if when we use the word theology, in most people will hear that. In, indeed, many, you know, maybe even most sort of scholars will hear that as implying something considerably more comprehensive than the theology that is assumed in a secular historical method. Because, um, yes, that I don't think this. So this is another potential area of divergence. I don't think the secular historical method rightfully understood or the secular historical method as I believe it ought to be understood. I, I think it's a better way of saying that um, comes in with a hard line. We know there is no God and we know there are no miracles. It, it just comes in requiring with with a certain set of standards for what it would take to demonstrate them, you know. Um, and I, I think the idea that, like, we're actually at, at the core kind of neutral on does God or miracles exist or happen, um, but we just have a very different set of plausibility tests for these things than a religious worldview has. That seems to me an entirely different character of animal from we start from the point of view that the, these things exist. And that's foundational to us. And we build quite a large comprehensive knowledge of it. Yeah, like, yes, yes, in a sense, right? You can't be neutral about God. I can see that. But it can... I, I think when you say, oh, it's all just theological claims, um, I think that can gloss over the extent to which these are just very, very, very different animals. And like, if I'm like to put it bluntly, animals that I don't think are equally plausible or equal, should, if I'm just being honest, e should yeah, yeah, yeah. command our respect, you know? Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll talk for a bit. I'll let you go on that. No, no, that, that's really helpful. And um I mean, maybe some caveats from me would be helpful here, but I mean, I, so when, when we talk about things like the historical critical method or the secular historical critical method, that's, that's really not to say that um, all Jesus historians think in the same way, because they really don't. No, I mean, no. You know, um, there is a, a great variety of um, Jesus historians, and there are basically as many different approaches to the historical Jesus as there are Jesus historians. You know, you put 10 of them in a room, you'll get 20 different opinions. Um, and actually loads of, especially in, you know, um, the third quest, a lot of these um, Jesus historians are Christian. Mm. So, it, you know, the discipline's not secular in that sense. Um, it would be completely wrong of me to characterise it in that way. Um, I see what you're you're saying about these kind of plausibility tests. I think what I would want to say in response is that those plausibility tests themselves are theologically significant. So those those plausibility tests, so the very way we measure plausibility proceeds from a series of metaphysical and theological assumptions. And some of those assumptions can be really banal, right? So just, you know, to say that the past exists is a metaphysical presupposition. I'm not saying that that's an unreasonable one to have when you're trying to study the past. 
because you need to have that that presupposition to study the past. That's just a really trivial example. When we think about things like miracles, miracles are a really interesting case because um, when you read lots of the um, the first quest, or what's sometimes called the old quest for the historical Jesus. So this is Schweitzer and you know slightly pre-Schweitzer. So from Romarus to Schweitzer is how I've characterized it in my book. So this is guys like Romarus, Strauss, Renan, people like that leading up to Schweitzer. Schweitzer, sorry. Um, one of the claims that we see kind of being made fairly frequently is that things like miracles um, are not historically apprehensible because we know that they don't happen. Because what miracles are, and this is all borrowed fairly heavily from David Hume's famous work on miracles, miracles are a suspension of the natural order. Mm. They are a supernatural interruption or suspension of the natural order. And I kind of want to say, well, yeah, I don't believe in those miracles either. <laughs> like as a Christian, I I do not think that, that is how miracles work. This is, you know, that portrayal of miracles, which is then used to just discount them from as historical data altogether. In in the works of some scholarship, not all scholarship, is itself a theological claim, and it's one that I think is bad theology. Hmm. It's not less theological. I would say it's deficiently theological. And so what I'm trying to get get at here is that we don't need less theology in the discipline. We just need better theology because the theology is already there. I don't think I'm trying to do anything new by in, I'm not trying to introduce theology into historiography mm. here. I think what I'm trying to say is that the theology is already there and it's just become so commonplace that it's become dominant in its implicity. Right. So by by being uncritically given this pass, we are allowing certain theological presuppositions that are already in the discipline to go unchecked. Great. And again, I'm, yep. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you in a sec. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, people therefore should think what I think when it comes to theology. It's really not to say that. But it's to say that there should be another way of doing it that is as academically legitimate as the first one. Great. Um, I think I think this move, and I've heard it from a lot of people, where they just go, history doesn't deal in miracles, right? I think that's your strongest case for for what you're trying to assert here, right? right. Because like <laughs> you hear it, you hear it, and you don't really question it, and then actually like, no, that's not quite right, you know. Um, I I also think you say it's bad theology. I would also say it's bad rationalism, right? Okay. That's that's not how a sort of rational scientific understanding of the world should proceed, right? Um, to, to, so I'll give you a, like like you know like think about like say um, the the various arguments that are made between rationally based medicine and alternative medicines, right? Yeah. The point of view of medical science should not be we know alternative medicine doesn't work. It should be there's criterias we have mm -hmm. that we would want it to meet. And if it meets them, it ceases to be alternative and it just becomes medicine, you know. So like if you have something like homeopathy, this seems pretty bonkers. But like if it could demonstrate itself in clinical trials to actually have an effect over and above a placebo, even if we didn't understand why it was having the effect, we'd start using it, 
Mm, yeah. yeah. And, and we should start using it. And so to the point about like miracles, like, yeah, no, we shouldn't be starting from the point of view because it might be that what you let, let's just say what you call a bad theological understanding of like a suspension of the natural order. Which, if I hear you right, neither of us are saying that's what happens. Mm -hmm. But, okay, we don't know how the entire universe is put together. We might be living in such a universe that occasionally, you know, the, the fundamental constants just get turned off and on again. Like, that might be the type of universe we're living in, you know? Like, I think from a rationalist point of view, you would want to see that cl that claim clear some pretty high plausibility hurdles but it's that's different from saying we start from the point of view that it's not true does that make sense yeah that, that makes loads of sense and i think um i think perhaps what i'm what i'm driving at is that this so you talk about kind of you know, universal principles being turned off and on again um i i don't think that a a um a more rigorous Christian theological account of what quote-unquote miracles are would conceive of miracles in that sense. So it's, no, no, it's agreed and understood. Um, I'm just saying, like, even with respect to, let's call it that you know, hard line interpretation mm -hmm. of what miracles are, the position, even with respect to that, Mm -hmm. The rationalist position shouldn't be we start knowing in advance that that's not the case, you know. And then if you construct, let's call it, you know, a more nuanced account of miracles, which I'm welcome, you know, um, we can discuss maybe. Again, the, the, the fundamental assumption shouldn't change. It shouldn't be we know or don't know that this happens. It should be, well, this is a the claim that can be assessed from within our worldview and plausibility assumptions. Yeah, sure. So I, I think um, my my question then becomes, well, how do we how do we measure the plausibility of something like that? Mm. Right. So, I mean, how do we I don't know, let's say, how do we measure the plausibility of something like Jesus turning water into wine? Mm. Well, the first thing you need to do is construct some sort of metaphysics for the nature of reality and the nature of causality. And again, this sounds really trivial. It sounds like I'm, you know, being needlessly pedantic like we know that water doesn't turn into wine mm. like you know I, i'm i'm not going down to tesco and buying water and then taking it home and turning it into wine because it's cheaper mm. right because that stuff doesn't happen right we know that that kind of thing doesn't happen but this suspension model and i, I know that you're you're not talking about miracles in those terms well, this suspension model is itself trading on a set of theological assumptions about the way in which God interacts with the world. Mm. And I'm I'm arguing for the space within academic historical Jesus research for alternative theological accounts for how God interacts with the world. Mm. And so when it comes to things like plausibility tests, um, I think you're right that the 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 default I don't know if I'd want to say the default, but certainly a completely reasonable naturalist, rationalist position isn't to rule them out, but to try and assess them. Mm. But I'm not therefore sure how you can assess them as being plausible or implausible from within that framework. 
because I think the, the theological content of that framework is such that they are ruled out before you even get to that stage, if that makes sense. Um, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> let's, let's maybe work through an example. Yeah. Um, so let's take the, the water into wine. Mm-hmm. I think the first question, so let me just work through that case in the same way as I sort of worked through, um, when I did my resurrection episode, how I assessed that claim, because I don't think I did in that episode start with the point of view that the resurrection didn't happen. Indeed, the answer I landed on is there is actually something there, um, but not really the stories that have come down to us. But that's it. So the water and wine. I think the first thing I'd ask is, well, where's this in my textual history? It's not in Paul. Yeah. Which gospels is it in? And what sources are we talking the mark side or the key side right like that's where i'd start right and that gives me a point to just assess do i think this is an early tradition or a later invention if it's a later invention um do you know off the top of your head is it in mark or is it in the q material it's wine yeah uh it's only in the gospel of john oh so then yeah yeah, yeah. okay so then that kind of to me closes that one yeah sure but i mean i okay but then say it didn't say it was early then you go down and you would sort of ask well i think the next question would be is the is there some sort of event at the bottom Mm -hmm. of this right did people believe it happened and i think with a lot of this stuff you can definitely okay not that one if it's only in john resurrection certainly i think very early on people believed they were having experiences of some type with a risen Jesus very early on. Okay, did did people really believe that? Yeah, I think that's a reasonably defensible historical claim. Um, did they actually see something? Yeah, maybe, right? Um, and then you can go to, okay, was what they were seeing? I really dislike the way we use words like hallucination and so on, because I think it can denigrate. Yeah, sure. Like, people have all sorts of experiences right does that imply something really substantial about the way the world works or the way morality works there okay there i think you're not going to get something from ancient records that meets the sort of plausibility requirements that um the a sort of scientific rationalist worldview would want to see met i think but you can imagine something like water being turned into wine that being demonstrated under controlled scientific tradition you know experiments and just sort of like we don't know why this is happening but apparently this dude can do it you can imagine that right um so just working through those cases i yeah i think and I think you miss a lot of that. If you start with the point of view that it didn't happen, then you don't sort of investigate the story. And it might be like the story might be how the story was invented. But like it might also be a story of something that is a real event and people absolutely believed happened. And you don't want to start with the point of view necessarily that it didn't, because then you miss that, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> And you say so the water to wine is probably a bad example because like you say it's it's in John and therefore is is probably late and so you know but if we can assume that all the textual evidence suggests to us that it's it's early it's it's you know 
there is a, a reliable tradition that Jesus turned water into wine. You know, let's just imagine that. And then we can think about whether or not that happened. Mm. Well, like you say, you know, just because somebody thinks something has happened doesn't mean it's happened. Mm. Right. Our, our experiences can be completely deceptive, even on a mass level. Mm. Right. So, you know, you talked in your resurrection episode about this, you know, disappearance to 500 people. Mm. Loads of people have claimed that that's just mass hallucination. Mm. And there are examples of mass hallucinations. That, that is... That is just a thing that happens. That's absolutely a thing that happens. The resurrection is a um, is an interesting example because I talk about the resurrection at um, at length in the second to last chapter in the book in conversation with N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and this might sound like an odd thing for a Christian to say, I don't think that you can historically prove the resurrection mm. one way or another. Because it's what I call a worldview defining event. Mm. So if all history, in the sense of historiography, so writing about the past rather than the past, if our understanding of how we approach the past is shaped by our metaphysics, Mm. the resurrection is an event that shapes our metaphysics in a way that is disruptive, right? So it's 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 discontinuous. So basically what I mean by that is whether or not you believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, in some way determines your worldview. Mm-hmm. It in some way determines the, your metaphysical out, outlook on on the world, mm. right? So it's it's not like so. Connor Cunningham, my my second PhD supervisor, used to say, Christianity is not an espresso at the end of the meal. Mm. It's not like we all agree on the way the world works, and then it's just do you believe in God, yes or no, mm. and the rest of that stuff is untouched. If the claim that Jesus has risen from the dead is true. All of that stuff before it is completely changed. Mm. So it's not the espresso at the end of the menu. It's the decision to walk to a different restaurant altogether. Yeah. To use Connor's metaphor, which I find fairly helpful. And so that means, so one of the things I'm critical of N.T. Wright for doing is using a secular method. So this this mm. non-Christian approaches to history to affirm something that could never be affirmed in that worldview. Why could it never be affirmed in that worldview? Because the metaphysical implications of the resurrection completely explode the metaphysical starting point of that world of that worldview. Is that not? I mean, you, you can imagine a universe in which a sort of rational secular method got you to a claim like the resurrection, and then yeah, that claim would itself then be informative of it would then like change your methodology going forward mm-hmm. but you you can imagine a universe like i say in which a rational secular method could get you to that claim I just, the, the thing is we're just not in that universe you know like the, the, the sort of evidence for something like the resurrection isn't sufficient within a secular worldview to establish it yeah, so I think but that's, that's like that's that's the problem with right, right? Like, yeah. like it's not that like it, it's that his argument for the historicity of the resurrection isn't a good argument as a historical argument. That's the issue with right. It's not. I don't know that it's more fundamental than that. It's, it's that his history isn't a good history. Right? Yeah, I mean there are, there are certainly places where I think regardless of your 
worldview, metaphysics, your theology, I think he makes bad historical judgments. So a really clear example of this is Matthew 27, 52 to 53. So where you get this really... When I read this, when I read this in your book, I was I was literally like, what the F, dude? Yeah, like, it's... Absolutely, what the hell? Yeah, and took focus for it. Yeah, and like, I, I want to caveat this by saying NGR NGR gets a really bad rap um, in all sorts of places. And I, I have, you know, a lot of respect for good chunks of his work. So his his book, The New Testament and the People of God, I think is still 30 years after its publication, a really helpful introduction to to things like historiography and hermeneutics. Um, his Paul book, I think, is less helpful. And Paul Friedrichson has written a, a really wonderful critique and review of, of that book if anybody wants to go and engage with the problems with that book when it comes to the resurrection of the son of god so this is the fourth book no the third book in his um christian origins and the question of god series so he's done a hermeneutics and historiography volume then he's done one on the historical jesus and then this is just to do with the resurrection it's a massive like eight nine hundred page book just on whether or not jesus is risen from the dead and there is this point at which I should say I haven't read it all, but I've listened to talks by him. OK, sure. So that's just my level of familiarity yeah. there. So anyway, uh, please. So he and then at one point he talks about Matthew 27, 52 to 53, which is this. If you go and look it up, it's, it's a really weird story, like just unbelievably bizarre. So Jesus dies on the cross. And at the moment of Jesus's death, all of the tombs of the saints in Jerusalem are opened up. And then at the moment of Jesus's resurrection, they wander into what's called the holy city, is the phrase the Greek uses there. So what we seem to have, if we're taking this as as historically reliable, is Jesus dies, people come out of the tombs, stand around while Jesus is in his tomb, and then when Jesus is risen from the dead, they walk into, into Jerusalem, right? It's just completely bizarre. Now, um, I have a theory, I haven't published this anywhere, but um, the, the phrase holy city refers to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. Hmm. So I, I don't I don't think it's an historical event in the sense that like this, like, I don't think if you were in Jerusalem at this point in, in history, you could have seen zombies at the edge of their tomb or anything like that. But Wright's argument at that point is essentially that some stories are so strange that they must be true. Which I just, so Dale Allison's, in one of his books, I forget which one, just basically says, you know, N.T. Wright's a really smart guy, but this is just dumb. Like, this is really stupid. And it, and it you know, I think regardless of your your metaphysics, your historiography, your worldview, that's just a really poor argument. Like, yeah. There is yeah. no way around that. That is just I mean, really- that, that's such an egregious case, but like... I'm not sure his overarching case for the resurrection, it's a bit of a longer argument. I'm not sure it's it's that much better. Like and yet no one and listen, neither of us are saying this is a dumb guy. He clearly knows his stuff, right? Yes, absolutely. Um but his case for the resurrection is like I'll I'll do it very briefly and you can like nuance it if you think it needs nuancing but like it's like in order for the early followers of jesus to believe this happened they must have both seen him and there been an empty tomb one one be insufficient we know that they did believe this therefore we can say that the appearances and the empty tomb are historical 
given that they're both historical, it's really only a hop, skip and a jump from there to the thing happened. And it's like, I'm just going to start with the first premise. No, like, no, (laughs) like, like both of these things must, the, the appearances in the empty tomb, um, must both have happened, um, for them to have come to believe it. No, people come to believe all sorts of stuff for all sorts of reasons. Um, I mean, my my view is some sort of appearances happened, but the empty tomb didn't. But it, it, it's not completely wild that there could have been an empty tomb, right? Um, but I, I guess one way of putting this is, is this a good historical argument? One way you could ask this question is, would you find this argument plausible if made about any other historical figure? And I just can't think N.T. Wright would, you know? I can't think, like, there's modern gurus who have, like, their followers claim were resurrected. If I made this, and that's in an age when we have video cameras and stuff, right? Like, would we find this argument plausible there? I can only assume he wouldn't. Which sort of lead anyway? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, so I yeah, so I th- I think that's that's um, a, a fair summary of the gist of his argument. You know, like we've said, it's it's a really long door stop of a book. It's you know, so trying to summarize everything he's, he's doing is is fairly difficult. So he one of the things he wants to argue is that um, when when Paul talks about resurrection in one Corinthians fifteen, because of the the second temple Jewish background around him, that must have been a physical resurrection. So he argues that there's no such thing as a as as a conception of a spiritual resurrection mm. in this period. It's all you know, it's all bodily resurrection. Um, then, like you say, he has these these two kind of impacts um, of of what he was is going to go on to say is the resurrection. So um, so people have experiences of the risen Jesus, and there is an empty tomb. Um, I think you touch on this in your resurrection episode but the phrase empty tomb is a bit of a misnomer mm. because it's not like tombs are one person things like you know and and the gospels even say that this is joseph of arimathea's family tomb yeah. as in it's for his whole family <laughs> so there are potentially loads of people in there what um and you know this this partly explains why the phrase empty tomb isn't in the new testament because it's perfectly plausible for the tomb not to have been empty and for Jesus not to have been in it. Yeah. Right. Um, Mark Goodacre has written a really helpful article on this. Um, and one of the things that Mark Goodacre says is that in Mark's gospel, when you get the women going in and there is this, you know, figure that is interpreted as being an angel on the right hand side. The reason it's on the right hand side isn't anything to do with Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father, which is what it's normally interpreted as. But it's because if you go into this family tomb and you dig out the tombs from right to left in like a kind of semicircle, mm. the right one is the first one. Mm. And so because it's, a, because it's a fresh tomb, this is where Jesus would have been placed because he's the first person in the tomb. Anyway, um, so. That's, no, I, I, yeah, no, it, it's the, the, the bit I did in the episode. And I appreciate you listening to that because you talked about a doorstop of a book. That's a doorstop of an episode. <laughs> but um, the, the, the when I cover the you you came and you placed him here and he like points at it the 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 analysis i do of that of like you have to keep in mind this is a tomb that has multiple people in it or could have multiple people in it. that's all coming from mark godaker 
Like, yeah. I found that, like, because it's one of those little lines that you don't notice until someone calls your attention to it. Yeah. And then, it, but then once your attention has been called to it, you realize actually that's quite significant. Yeah. And if, you know, if anybody has got like 300 pounds to spare and wants to read more about this, Rachel Hakalili's book is is great. Jewish Funerary Customs in Late Antiquity, I think it's called. It's published by Brill. So it's, you know, not cheap, but it is a really good book. Um, so anyway, N.T. Wright's argument is essentially that in order for the early Christians, the, you know, the, the Jewish Jesus movement to have believed that Jesus was risen from the dead, you need to have both this empty tomb, so both the lack of a body okay. and these appearances, because he says either one of those things on their own can be explained by other factors, right? So um, if there was an empty tomb, if there was no body, people would just have assumed it was grave robbers, okay. because that's really common in this period. If people had just had the visions, they wouldn't have jumped to resurrection, because again, visions are really common. Visions of recently deceased important people are really common in this period, right? And so what he says is that in order for them to, the fact that we have both of these things suggests that um, both of those things actually happened. And therefore, and it's this therefore where I have the issue. Um, you know, we can talk about the details of all of that stuff, but even if we take that for granted, I have a massive issue. Even if we take all of that stuff for granted and we agree with everything he's argued, he's got no warrant to give the therefore. Yeah, he's got no warrant. He hasn't given himself the framework to say that therefore the resurrection happened. No, no. And I think you can nitpick a lot of that. Um, and we needn't go down that rabbit hole. Um, and, I mean, like one nitpick is say we're probably in, uh, imposing a modern dichotomy when we say was it physical or was it um, spiritual? Sure. Um, and you could ask like when Paul says um summa pneumaticos right a body of pneuma is that the same thing as like how we think about spiritual right mm. i think it may very well not be yeah. um and is that the same thing that luke is refuting when his jesus says i'm not a pneuma you know like yeah. are they tracking to the same thing there because pneuma can mean a hell of a lot of different things right um like it might be just like that natural like like it, there, there is a natural spiritual divide but like that what that dichotomy is framing and tracking to in the ancient world might be just quite different to what we're thinking about i think so you can nitpick it and i'd nitpick the front end but yeah i i agree even putting even assuming you know right is right um that therefore is like a hell of a, a move yeah yeah so it just sort of feels like it, this argument bugs me a bit. I think it bugs you too, but for different reasons. Because it's like, I just don't think you're being honest about what your commitments are here. You're either not being honest with me or you're not being honest with yourself. The history, you know, like this isn't, this isn't, you're smart enough to know that this isn't like, the history doesn't get you where you want it to get you. Yeah, so so my 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 issue with with Wright's stuff on the resurrection is is one of consistency first mm. and foremost. So it's it's interesting to compare him to James Dunn on the resurrection. So so James Dunn um, employs a method that is again based on Gadamer, this guy I mentioned earlier. So he he wants to employ a, a historical version of what Gadamer would call Verkungsgeschichte, 
um, which is German for something like history of impact. Mm. So basically, if, if you trace, Gadam is talking about texts. Mm. If, you can, if you trace the, the history of impact that a text has had, that can help you to interpret and understand the text. Mm. James Dunn wants to do something similar with history. So if you trace the impact of Jesus, he says that's our primary means for understanding Jesus, the man himself. Okay. So, you know, so he says things like, you know, the Gospels are part of this, this Verkungsgeschichte, this, this history of impact, right? Um, and James Dunn, again, was a Christian, um, but employs a, a purely kind of non-Christian academic historical critical method. But he does so in order to kind of expose the limits of historical methodology. So he says that, you know, I, there seems to have been something that happened around Easter time. But given the methods that we have given ourselves as an academic discipline, we can't go beyond that. We can't go beyond that. Right. So we, we can't go beyond saying something happened. And so he doesn't quite say this so explicitly, but he I think he wants to start suggest saying things like, so so therefore maybe mm. like because we've reached our limits here therefore maybe this tells us something about the framework in which these limits have been produced i think that's a completely reasonable argument to make right to adopt a secular critical historical critical method in order to expose its own limits i think that's a totally reasonable thing to do what Wright wants to do i think no, I don't think this. I know he does this. What Wright says in his book is that um, he goes beyond that. So he's not exposing the limits of his method. He is using that same method to go beyond the limits of what that method can actually say. Yeah. And so on page, I I think it's 517. I know this because this is a really important page in the book. He says that the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances aren't just contingent. Um. Sorry, the resurrection itself isn't just a contingent cause of the appearances in the empty tomb. They are a necessary cause. And that word necessary is the issue. The reason, so what he means by contingent and necessary is um, contingent essentially is something that might have caused an event. Necessary is something that has to have been present for an event to happen. Right. So he uses the example of a computer not working. He says there are lots of contingent causes for why my computer might not be working. Um, I might not have turned it on. The power to my house might be dead, so on and so forth. The computer might be fried, whatever. But a necessary cause for a computer to work is that your house has electricity and it's plugged in. And he says that the resurrection is to the appearances in the empty tomb. The actual bodily resurrection of Jesus is to those things what electricity is to a computer. In other words, he says there is no way that you can have these appearances in this empty tomb without this resurrection. And that's where my issue is. Yeah, right. Yeah, because he's again, he's not just saying, you know, I'm at the limits of what I can say in my methodology. He is. Um, using this method to affirm an event that just completely explodes the framework that he's used to get to that event. I think I get where, where you're coming from with this a lot more now. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's a fair enough case for either the appearances or the empty tomb, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can make those historical cases. And then, and then what, right? 
yeah so so this this is it so and like you know it doesn't even need to be either or i think you can if you want to if you think it's a good use of your time you can go and you can make a strong case for for both of those things having happened that doesn't mean the resurrection happened no <laughs> because the framework in which you affirm those two events does not support that resurrection right um i mean i think like it doesn't let me just speak for myself i think i'm i'm sold on the appearances i'm not sold on empty tomb but let's just say for the sake of argument i'm sold on both um Mm -hmm. so what what's there you know what's in the like like if you've sort of sketched out an arena and you've said okay well it's not this it's not this it's not this like so what i can say a lot of things i think didn't happen you know i don't i I don't think it's the case that jesus was made up i think there was a person you know you know so on and so forth but what's left you know well a whole load of stuff let's let's say we're reasonably sold on the appearances an empty tomb whole load of stuff i think there's all sorts of explanations for like ways we can think about why someone might see or hear something um, there's all sorts of reasons, some of which the Gospels themselves are concerned to refute about mm-hmm. why a tomb might be empty, right? Yeah. Um, could be all of that. Could be something that, like, we're really just not thinking of, right? Or there could really be a hard there there. Could be any of those, right? There's a, just a, a big arena of options that you have for what could have happened there if those if there's an empty tomb and appearances um of which you know some of them would be really challenging to make sense of within a a sort of secular worldview right the the historical method gets you to that arena of options it's we just it doesn't we don't have enough data here to start deciding amongst those options even, but it, it, it's not. It, it, yeah, one of the options I probably have a fairly low credence, but one of the options is that there is a hard there there. You know. Like, so this this is probably one of the points where we diverge. Um, and when I've when I've been explaining this to students at Saint Melitus where I work, um, which is a, a Church of England theological college um, based in the UK, we um, this is the thing that students take the most convincing of i would say um i don't think the resurrection i don't think there being like an actual resurrection is an option in that framework yes okay this is where we diverge right because i think the the resurrection understood properly brings with it its own metaphysical framework and so if if all historiography is done after metaphysics so if you have to have some kind of view of the way the world works in order to do history, and if the resurrection brings with it a new way of thinking about how the world works that is discontinuous with the secular view of the world, then the resurrection can't be an option from within secular historiography because it just blows it up. So this is this is my issue with right is I, I don't think it's an option that he should even consider because I don't think it I think it has a, a plausibility value of zero from within a secular metaphysical framework. So I guess then, so no, please finish. No, I, I was literally just gonna say, because if the resurrection is true, it, it undermines every single thing about the secular metaphysical framework. Because I, again, it's not just that espresso at the end of the meal, it's a whole other restaurant. Yeah, so I think this then moves us forward and this might just have to be like the sequel as it were, or like, 
Um, but I think this then moves us forward to like, what are we thinking about when we think about resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. Because the espresso at the end of the meal would be the body dies in a sort of biological sense, like there's, there, there is a body, it is brain dead, by whatever your sort of medical definition of death is. Mm -hmm. It's it's dead, right? And then three days later, the brain turns back on and it starts breathing again. That's the espresso at the end of the meal, right? Like, like, like the, the body comes back to life. Like, clearly what people mean when they, they say the resurrection is a bit thicker than that. It involves more stuff. Um, but, like, I would say the, let's call it the thin resurrection, which is the body comes back to life. That's fine within a sort of secular rational worldview. I think our degree of, like, like, like we say, like, it doesn't seem particularly likely from within that worldview. But, yeah, it could happen. It's not completely unthinkable, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, if, if, you know, if the resurrection has a value, a plausibility value of naught, I think something like that, which, you know, maybe we could call like a resuscitation, maybe that has a plausibility value of 0.01, something like that. Like technically might have happened, but like, have you ever seen that? <laughs> I've never seen that. And, yeah. and to be fair to N.T. Rye, this is one of the points I think he makes really well, which is that, you know, pe people know that that didn't happen. Like, you know, ancient people aren't naive idiots. Like, mm. they know that people don't come back from the dead. Because people don't come back from the dead, right? So, I mean, I I agree that you know m maybe if we're talking about this thin account of the resurrection or this you know resuscitation, maybe within like a secular secular framework, maybe there is some crazy argument to say that that's what happened, but that is not what I would want to say. Christian orthodoxy has to say about what happens at the resurrection of Jesus. Yes. Because he doesn't come back to life. He lives as one who has lived through death. Mm. And there are theological differences in those two accounts of the resurrection. Theological being the key word there. And one, I think, is available to us in a secular historical critical method, although it seems completely implausible to me. I, like, I don't see how you could argue for the plausibility of that thin resurrection resuscitation. No, I mean, I don't. Like no, no, I know we just we have just isn't yeah, yeah. good enough, you know. Yeah. Um, like, and even if it happened in a hospital or something, like you'd still, you know. I, I just say in the in the arena of things, it could have been assuming an empty tomb and whatever. It's it's in there. It's not your, your main feature. You, you could put it in there. Like it could be one of the options. Maybe sure. Yeah, it's sort of thing. It's it is possible. But um, again, my point is that that is that is not the Christian claim. No, no, no. I'm not saying it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and and that specific Christian claim about what actually happens to Jesus at the moment of his resurrection is, I think, not an option as far as secular historiography is concerned. And that's my issue with Wright is that he he never seems to acknowledge the issue that his conclusion has for his premises. He he ends up soaring off the branch he's sat on mm. and doesn't seem to have an issue with that. I can sort of see that. I mean, maybe it's a difference. There is some something to be teased out here of like, if the resuscitation, let's call it that, um, mm. is like a 0 0.01, like, is it that the, the thicker resurrection 
is like a 0.0000001 or is it zero right and like does that distinction matter like if it because at some point it's functionally zero right does it matter if it's functionally zero or a hard zero i guess is is like the question yeah i mean i think it does matter because it um well i think partly it matters because it's true um in that i you know again i'm sorry to sound like a broken record i just don't think it's it's it is an option within this framework mm. um but it also matters practically because whether or not you you know it is in any way plausible to talk about something like that you know i mean if you know if, if nt right is talking about something there's no point not 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 one mm. on the probability scale or the plausibility scale well, I mean, he's going to have a job, like he's going to have a job to convince you of that, but it's still possible, right? So there's an important distinction to make here between possibility and plausibility. Right. The the full on, like the full fat resurrection of Jesus. Full fat resurrection, <laughs> I like that. You know, if, even if it's got a low plausibility, mm. it's still possible. Mm. Whereas I want to go further and say it's not only has it got a low plausibility within this framework, mm. it's not even possible within this framework. I mean, and again, I would want to say that from within a Christian framework as well. It's not, mm. I don't think it's possible to prove the resurrection, even if we are operating with some kind of Christian approach to historiography, because again, it's the ground of that metaphysical framework. It's not mm. a thing that you can argue for, it's a thing that you argue from. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Um, I can see that. Um, I think I think to a certain extent from within history, it's all academic anyway, because like the types of hurdles a claim like that would need to clear are yeah. just not clearable when what you have are sort of documents and bits of archaeology and stuff like that's just not. You know, even if. You know, something really weird did happen, like. To, to get it over our sort of rationalist plausibility hurdles like the the thing just can't jump that high you know yeah. from, the, from the sources that we have in the same way but i mean you, you could say that about anything there's all sorts of miracle stories and like big events where like god intervenes in the world in you know other ancient religions outside of christianity yeah maybe but like for, for to even start looking at that like no you, you, you that it's written down somewhere it's just never gonna clear it you know yeah and I, I agree I, I don't think any um any kind of secular historical critical methodology should should be engaging with that stuff mm. because again it's coming from a metaphysical framework where those things just do not happen that is not how the world works <laughs> but that is not the same thing as saying that the alternative metaphysical frameworks are therefore less academically viable Mm, well, um, but OK, so what, what would that look like then? Can you think of like um, a particular like historical argument about either did this or didn't this happen or, you know, just like sort of how did it go if it did? Mm -hmm. The you know, what the where let's say a conventional historical account could gain something by um a more theologically informed methodology come on because i can think of a thin sense in which i totally agree with that um but i think you want to say something thicker so the thin sense is um 
you know, as you know, when I do episodes on this, I always do them in dialogue with two figures in my head, um, an apologist and a mythicist. Not that I agree with either position, but I think they're useful reminders, you know, yeah. um, in the like, Sometimes, because when you do the plausibility tests, I think what you can often end up doing is shaving off all the knobbly edges and just reducing everything down to its like most mundane interpretation. Yeah. And actually, like some of the times when you've got like a really weird passage, like the answer is because it happened. Like, like weird stuff happens sometimes. And you can say, well, this isn't how people at the time would have be behaved. Yeah, people do all sorts of bonkers stuff. Like sometimes like it's not. A... Sometimes people do something that someone looking back at us 100 years from now would say that is not a plausible thing that person would have done, but they, we still did it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and equally with the mythicist view, I don't believe it's all made up. But like sometimes the answer is just like because it was made up. Like sometimes it's actually not harder than that. Um, and so I like to have both of them in my head to just remind myself of, like, don't just sand everything down to the most boring read. Like, yeah. at least be open to weird thing happened or it's just made up. And people say stuff like, oh, people would never have made up a story like that. People, no, people make up all sorts of stuff, you know. Yeah. I, I, so I can see totally the value of having that. And, you know. And if you said, OK, I don't want to add an apologist per se, but I want to argue someone who like I want to have someone situated in the conversation who like argues from the resurrection in your words. Yeah, OK, I can see that. I think you want to say something a bit thicker, though. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, just to, to kind of illustrate your point about people making stuff up. So. Um, so what, one of the things that we are kind of as far as we can be 100% sure didn't happen, you know, given that caveat, one of the things that we are, you know, 99.99% .99 sure didn't happen is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 51 to yeah. 11. The reason why we know that this is almost certainly not historical is because it doesn't appear in the manuscripts until hundreds of years after the gospel that John was written. Um, and it seems like a really odd story to to just kind of make up. Some people, you know, you'll often hear like sermons or some Christians say, well, you know, this is just this is a story where um, it's, it's been inserted to show how Jesus good is, how good Jesus is. Sorry, um, because there's this woman who has been found to have, have been adulterous. People want to stone her. And Jesus says this famous phrase, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. No one throws a stone and everyone walks away. Jesus forgives the woman, everything's rosy, everything's lovely. Um, but we don't need to have any more stories about how good Jesus is. Like, we've got loads of them. <laughs> um, and Chris Keith's PhD um, was on this passage. And he says, what you need to do to work out why um, a story might have been inserted mm -hmm. is to try and work out what you would have lost if that story wasn't there. And the thing that seems to have been lost is this is the only point in the New Testament where Jesus is described as writing. He, he bends down on the ground and he writes something in the ground. We don't know what it is. It's not important what it is. But he makes a really convincing argument that in like the third or the fourth century, a group of Christians encounter some kind of opposition. And because of the claims that this opposition group are making about Jesus, it becomes really Christologically and theologically significant that Jesus has got the ability to write. Hmm. And so they and so 
they include this story. They make up the story and they include it and put it in the Bible. I say put it in the Bible. You know, what I mean, they include this story, insert it into the gospel of John, the Gospel of John, so that they've got a story of Jesus being able to write because that becomes significant at that moment. That seems completely wild to us, right? It, it doesn't like, it, from my point of view, I couldn't, I couldn't care less if Jesus can write or not. But at some point in time, it became very important for some group of Christians that they could write, that Jesus could write. And so that becomes significant. So, yeah, so I, I agree. There are all sorts of reasons why people might want to make things up. Um, I think. I've forgotten your original question. Sorry. <laughs> um, do you want to say something more substantial than, you know, I like to when I'm. I, I should. I'm, I'm not a historian. I think it's just fun to play around with, and I like playing around with it. Right? It's just like I'm just like here's some toys. I like playing with the toys. I'm not saying I'm playing with the toys professionally. I play with the toys. Anyway, um, I I like to put um that that in dialogue with an apologist and a mythicist because like sometimes they're right for the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know, I think the mythicist starts from the point of view that they want it to all be made up. Right. And then they work backwards from there and end up saying stuff like Easter comes from the goddess Ishtar or something, which is completely non-defensible from within a historical method. Yeah. Or like the Christ Christmas is actually a pagan festival, but it isn't. Yeah. Um, you know, but but sometimes like they they're right, but like it is just made up or like it is a elaboration on earlier myth or whatever. But like a historical read might not get you there, right? Like sometimes they're right for the wrong reasons and you want to always ask yourself that question. And sometimes really weird stuff happened in history and you want to like not close the door to that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I so in terms of this dichotomy between, a, a, you know, apologist and, and mythicist, I would, would want to sit myself in the middle of those two things. I'm not... Um, I'm not advocating for unfettered, you know, Christianity is right. Yeah, I'm not describing that. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because like we said, there is some stuff that we we know fairly certainly didn't happen. So that story of the woman caught in adultery, we are fairly sure, like any ounce of critical thought, I think, should lead you to the conclusion that that didn't happen. And I wouldn't want to throw that away. But at, at the other end of the spectrum, there is stuff that we know almost certainly did happen. Yeah. And so this is where the mythicists go wrong. You know, Jesus almost certainly existed, almost certainly was was baptised by John the Baptist, almost certainly had probably 12 disciples. And this, again, kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier about Jesus being an apocalyptic prophet. That seems to be an apocalyptic act, mm -hmm. looking forward to the reconstitution of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, he was almost certainly some kind of teacher. It's a fairly mundane thing to say, but that's something that we that we know. Um, he almost certainly will have been known as some kind of miracle worker. Yeah. It like in, in the vaguest possible terms. That's not to say that those miracles happened, but just to say that he had some kind of reputation for being able to do deeds of power. Uh, he was almost certainly uh, crucified during the reign of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, and he almost certainly... Um, started some kind of Jewish sect that continued after his death. Yep. So so in, in between these two kind of, you know, some stuff definitely didn't happen, some stuff definitely did happen. There has to be some kind of like mid-Christian, like 
critical middle ground where we think about those things that are greyer than that. Yeah. Um, and secular historical um, critical methodology has, has come up with all sorts of methods and approaches for, for doing that. But I don't think that this should be the, the be all and end all of what can be said critically and historically. Because again, historically is frequently understood as this specific, um, as, as operating from within this specific metaphysical framework. But that metaphysical framework itself is assumed for, not argued for. I mean, maybe it'd be useful to sort of walk through this with a case. Um, what's a good example of like a grey sort of area? Um, I would say just a lot of the specific teachings of Jesus. Like, did he say that? I mean, yeah, I might have done, but like... Yeah. Um, so like, I don't know, let's do, did, did Jesus teach against divorce? I think there's a reasonably strong historical case that he did. Paul cites him as saying it. It's in all four of the Gospels. If so, what, though? Because they all say it a bit differently, right? Mm -hmm. I think where I'd land with that is I'm pretty cautious when I do history. I think one of the points apologists make really, really well is where the apologists really land a punch, I think, is when they say, you've got to be consistent. And you claim to know, oh, Alexander the Great must have been thinking exactly this when he crossed the River Granicus. Your sources are 300 years later, and yet yeah. you apply this hyper-critical approach to sources that are 20 years later, in the case of some New Testament documents. That is a very valid point that the, yes. the, yeah. the, the, the apologists make. I think I go the other direction with it than they do, in that I don't say, okay, so we need to sort of take our gospel sources at face value. I think yeah. I go to the point of we maybe need to take the Alexander sources at considerably less face value okay. so I'm, I'm i'm just pretty skeptical not in a like a religious skepticism i'm just like there's only so far this goes i think what you can say is jesus taught something about divorce and something about not doing it were there exceptions to that rule maybe was it a blanket condemnation maybe why did he why did he say that well i think the apocalypse the jewish and the prophet bit you know might give us some clues but their guesses you know, like, and that's about as far down the road as you go. Um, what, you know, like, but at no point in that, like, I've acknowledged the apologist in a sense to say, yeah, 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 like, I like that bit, that thing you said. At what point in that story am I gaining something? Or is there something I'm missing or that could be added to? So I think, you know. I, yeah, so I, I think the thing that I would want to pick up on, um, isn't isn't so much you know the content of what we therefore think about the historical Jesus, but the content of the form, to use Hayden White's phrase. So the fact that the 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 ways in which we think about the historical Jesus are themselves filled with content. And so it's interesting you talk about you know Alexander the Great and you know like you say this is this is a move that people make all the time. Well, you know the New Testament is. Jesus as an historical figure is so much better attested than other ancient historical figures, and therefore you should trust what the sources say about Jesus more than you trust the sources that would say about Caesar or Alexander the Great or whoever you want. And it's interesting that you said you would go the opposite way. So actually, I, I would want to drag the New Testament over to, to that level of, you know, 
of, of scepticism or validity or however you want to phrase them. And what I would be interested in, what I am interested in, what I'm trying to kind of prod at in this book is the reasons behind why you would go one way and some more would go another way. Mm. Because it, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying it's more plausible to drag the New Testament to that end of the spectrum. It's more, it's more plausible to drag. Oh, sorry, Alexander the Great over to the level of scrutiny that we subject the New Testament to, yeah, than to start reading the New Testament with the sort of level of credence we do in some other bits of history. Yeah, right. So, so there, there are two different options there, right? You can, you know, we've got, you know. The credibility we give to Alexander the Great and those sources and the credibility we give to the New Testament and those sources, the argument is, you know, those two things should be aligned, mm. broadly speaking, is the argument. But the direction of alignment varies, right? So some people will say we should align one to the other. You would say, you know, we should align things the other way. And what I'm interested in is the reasons behind why people choose different paths there, right? Yeah. And I think... I think what it is, is that there is some kind of pre-given set of presuppositions and metaphysical, um, tacit metaphysical claims that are governing those prob- those plausibility choices that we are implicitly making. And that those, those claims that are governing those processes are themselves full of metaphysical and theological content. Great. Okay, I, I, I like this. I like that argument. Okay, so let me let me work this back. I'm saying, okay, here's a case. What did Jesus did Jesus teach about divorce, and if so, what? I gave some, and I said, you know, what what does like approaching it from a theological point of view add to this argument? And I made an argument about its historicity. But then I kept talking because I like the sound of my own voice, and I don't. <laughs> to stop and i said okay i actually do take something from apologists here mm-hmm. which is a reasonable level of skepticism is like what yeah. falls out of that argument for me and i think you know i do take the apologist point. i think it's a really good point actually the fact that they always make it and like they're wrong about a whole lot of other stuff doesn't stop it being a really good point yeah. you know um and I said, okay, you know, and I sort of justified the fact that I read ancient texts pretty skeptically. And I, you know, and you said, okay, but you could you could make that consistency happen different ways, right? So like what I'm getting at and what I think perhaps bringing theology in has to offer is not at the level of here's a clever argument about why it's Luke's version of the divorce saying rather than Matthew's. Right, it's not that. It's that like you have to have you're making assumptions about what level you know, sort of my overall skepticism or level of credence or how I'm reading the text in the first place, um, which are well, I'll put words in your mouth, rooted in a certain worldview. Mm-hmm. Yes. And might have something to gain from that worldview at least potentially being in dialogue with a theological one am i yes um although i'm slightly reticent to use the word theological because one of the points i want to make is that all of this is theological anyway 
So again, we're not we're not talking about. Um, well, oh, sure, but we'll we'll just talk past each other on definitions of theology then. But sure, sure, religious, whatever you want to say for that, yeah. Sure. So I, I think all, all I would just as a quick caveat, all, all I would want to say is that, you know, I don't think either of these approaches are more or less theological than each other. They are just different in the ways in which they are theological. I think we disagree on that, but let's, that's that's not central to the, okay. to the to the line I'm trying to pursue, or at least we disagree in a sort of it depends what you mean by theology type of way. Okay. Um, but yeah, sure. So like, like I, I guess what I'm asking for is like you're saying the discipline could benefit from being in dialogue with, let us say, um, these other perspectives that fall outside of a traditional historical worldview. I'm trying to concretize that. I want to sort of see yeah. a benefit. And so what I hear you saying is the benefit doesn't occur at the level of here's why we think Jesus said this about divorce and, and here's an argument. It occurs at the level of me saying something to the effect of I'm pretty skeptical about attestations of what people said or didn't say in the ancient world in general. I think most, you, you know. Yeah, so, so you know, if we think about this, this apologist example again, so, you know, let's say we we think that the sources for alexander the great's life are 80 percent accurate just to pluck a random figure and let's say we think that the gospels are 20 percent accurate yeah right again just to pluck a random figure now if you if you agree with the idea that actually they are probably as accurate as each other they are yeah. you know you are holding those two things to different standards if you agree with that and we can have all sorts of conversations about whether or not we should agree with that but if you agree with that you then have three options, right? You could say, well, okay, maybe the Gospels are then 80% accurate because that's what Alexander the Great sources are. Or that's option one. Option two, maybe Alexander the Great sources are actually 20% accurate, mm. right? There's a third option, which is, you know, may maybe I need to adjust my view of both of those things, right? So maybe they're both 50% accurate. So yeah. you've got three options. Now, the thing I'm interested in is what what influences scholars to go down one of those three routes yeah no because like it's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question i really like that question yeah. that you've put it's, it it's 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 that level of um of thought that is often not made explicit for for all sorts of really understandable reasons you know the first just being space in your books <laughs> like you can't justify every single little thing that you might need to justify. So I'm not saying this as a, as a criticism, I'm really not. But just to say in, in that moment of choosing which of the three paths to take, a choice is being made. And it's significant that we recognise that a choice is being made and talk about why that choice is being made rather than a different choice. So what like what is pushing you to put both at 80% rather than 20% or 50%? Mm. And that's, that's where I think it, are, it is formed by, informed by, shaped by, influenced by our pre-given metaphysical framework, right? Yep. So we bring a set of assumptions to these questions that nudge us gently down one of those three paths. And those things therefore aren't neutral. 
that's that's kind of what I'm driving at here, if that makes sense. No, no, I get that, and I, I like this this uh, this this formulation. I guess I'm still looking for like a punchline of like, what am I? You say that the the, the the discipline could benefit. Yeah, so what, I think what, what's the result? So I think I think the res, I think what the result should be. Um, and by the way, I'm I'm not the only person to have done similar arguments. So Seth Herringer in the states is is published a book called Uniting History and Theology, which is is arguing for something very similar to this, um, for example. I think I think what should, so I, I think perhaps it's, it's not that traditional secular historical critical methods need to do something differently, mm. but there needs to be the production of a whole set of different frameworks within which new methods can be constructed. And in some ways that may look very similar, right? So my reasons for not thinking that the story of the woman caught in adultery isn't historical is probably going to be very similar to to why you know Marcus Borg thinks that that story is not historical. For example, we can come from completely different frameworks, but still think similar things for the same reasons because those two things aren't completely mutually exclusive, right? We're still reading the same texts, we're still people, we're still applying some kind of notion of critical judgment to all of this. But the discipline as a whole, I think, can benefit by this greater sense of plurality because it's allowing people to more accurately represent the metaphysical framework that they're coming to the text with. No, nobody is, is being kind of tacitly encouraged to adopt a different metaphysical framework in order to participate in the debate. Oh, OK, so let me let me repeat that back to you. I've been sort of asking you for like you say there's a benefit. Give me a benefit. Put the money on the table. It's sort of been yeah. my line of questioning. Um, let's take our, is it 50%, 80%, whatever. Yeah. I think the bring them both to the middle actually probably represents my view. Bring Alexander the Great down, bring the Bible up a little, but that's beside the point. Why? Like, why yeah. am I like, I can talk, but it would be very, very long and it wouldn't be relevant really to the point we're pursuing. Um, about what are my sort of presuppositions or prejudices even towards sort of thinking like, okay, well, I want to move this this way. Um, if I'm writing a history, I should talk about those, what, not just that I'm making that call, but why, what am I evaluating that call with reference to? Yep. Yep. Agreed. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a great, one of my favorite quotes is, um, from Michael Frieden, one of the introductions to his book, where he says it's time we moved past viewing methodology as an overly self-indulgent introduction. Yeah. Like it's just a big chapter at the beginning of the book that no one reads. You know, it's something that should be woven throughout everything that you're doing and constantly referenced back to. I don't think you write a methodology chapter because then that just becomes a methodology book and then you're writing nothing else. I think which is basically what I've done. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But like when you're writing, you do want to get eventually get to the point where you write a history, right? And like Yes. Yes. Methodology yes. should inform you should constantly be reflecting back on it and like what is underpinning the plausibility call. If if all you're doing is reading stuff and going, yeah, I kind of think that's plausible, you have to constantly be in it reflecting on why. You're finding that plausible not so. So what you're saying is having more voices would 
encourage people to do that and make their sort of implicit whys explicit because there would be like more variance, more homogeneity or something to that effect? Yeah, so it, not just more people, but more people from um, from explicitly different operating from within operating um, with explicitly different um, metaphysical frameworks, right? And I'm not just talking about Christian here. So you know, uh, we should have you know explicitly Buddhist historical reconstructions of the historical Jesus. We should have, you know, people from all sorts of explicitly different his, um, metaphysical frameworks, because it's in that 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 jarring and the rubbing up of those competing and contradictory metaphysical frameworks mm. that the assumptions behind our conclusions start to get brought into the light, and we can question them, right? So, so why do I find such and such a thing plausible? Well, maybe it's because of X, Y, and Z that I hadn't really articulated. Maybe that was kind of pushing that a little bit. And so, in in this, you know. In this greater plurality, I think we we start to encourage one another through our otherness to each other to think at a deeper, more more critical level about the pre-critical bits of our argument. And that's not to say that anybody needs to, you know, be converted. I'm not saying that we need to replace everything that's gone before with a load of Christians telling everyone how great Jesus was. There is a, there's a place for, for, you know, I think one, one of the things I want to try and get really, make really clear in the book is that it's, I'm not advocating for a replacement of anything, but an expansion mm. of the discipline. So more things alongside what is already there, not instead of what is already there. I do like that argument. I guess that we, we should stop. Um, the, the sort of counter would be, is is that like the only you know, mechanism. I, I think my my reason for wanting to sort of preserve a sort of a, a, a not an arena. I mean, maybe we don't even really disagree here that much, but like a, a, a tool set that is quite pure historically, right, is that like people really, really, really want to do stuff with this book, you know, and sit mm. and wield it as a it is it is a powerful and therefore quite dangerous or potentially dangerous yeah. thing and i really sort of like and i think most of the time when people do historical re jesus research they kind of fail at it if i'm being honest in the their they what, what's the Schweitzer quote? Or it might be someone else where he says it's like you're looking down a well and the Jesus Yeah, George, George Tyrrell. So, you know. Who, who is it? Who, who George, George Tyrrell, I think his, his name is. So um, it is in the book somewhere because it's, it's this really famous quote. And he, he's writing just before Schweitzer about the guys who have come before Schweitzer. So he's writing about um, Ramaris and Renan and Strauss and people like that. He says, you know, these, these people have, have tried to see Jesus, but they've just, all they've done is peered into a well and seen their own reflection staring back at them from the bottom of the yeah. well. And to be fair, that goes for people I agree with politically, you know. Mm. I think in, in their desire to oppose, let's say, a sort of right-wing American Christianity, liberals were often correctly pointing out the sort of a historical nature of what a lot of conservatives say yeah and their hypocrisy and their engagement with scripture in certain times that's all fine they'll then sort of say well the real jesus was 
a brown-skinned oppressed Palestinian who taught love and compassion and tolerance for everyone. And like, what what you're saying is, I want an anti-racist pluralist society that loves and accepts everyone. Say, great, great. Your description of Jesus as a set of claims about a historical figure has some issues, (laughs) you know? And like, I, 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 I see it, all sorts of people doing it, I guess, you know, like, and I think like, like a lot of the historical Jesus stuff, like I say, maybe they're not being self-consciously deceptive. They've and they've made arguments, but it it is interesting how often you get at the bottom of it the historical Jesus is someone who's not only morally admirable, but morally admirable from the point of view of a modern ideology that didn't exist back then. It is yeah. interesting how often that's the case. And so yeah, like I think my first impulse on this which leads to a very similar conclusion as yours is yeah i do want i you know and i'm not saying this is the only way you know the vast majority of times people approach scripture it is not in a historical sense if someone's preaching on this in church they're not gonna spend an hour telling you about like source criticism or something you know um is I don't know. I just think, yes, I I, I do want to be really like, when we're doing history, we're doing history. Now, that doesn't mean you can't kind of have two sides to your brain and say, okay, there's the history side and the theology side. I think doing history properly and being rigorous about it will make you ask those sorts of questions about what presuppositions am I bringing to my plausibility arguments? Um, Yeah. I I don't know. I wonder if you, you... like being really rigorous about history as history kind of gets you there anyway. And you, I don't know. Yeah, I see what you mean. I th- I think, again, <laughs> I feel like a bit of a broken record here, but um, I think one of, one of, one of my concerns with that kind of line of thought is that, um, is, is this division between history and theology. And again, you know, maybe we are just speaking past each other in terms of definitions, but um, this, you know, this, this kind of notion of, of doing history is itself born out of a of of a set of theological claims ultimately. Yeah. And so and so if that's true, if that's true, and you know people will have um, all sorts of questions about the ifness of that statement, but if that's true, then what we're doing by you know divorcing history, which is in some sense theological with this other thing that we're also calling theological is we're actually just enshrining one form of theology, and, and that that becomes the problem. I mean, I mean, maybe I could accept the sort of definite. There's a conversation about I think we're using word theology in different senses, and fine, right? But to use it even in your sense, I, I wonder if I could say and and yeah, 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 we're enshrining one form of theology. Cool, that's what we should be doing. I I would want a more pluralistic. Um, <laughs> academy than that i think um although no the, the theology can be theology but it is yeah I, I i suppose i just have concerns about um and again you know all of this depends on whether you think i'm right but like if i am right about what i think I, I, I will say i don't i don't find the pluralism argument wholly unpersuasive i think that that is like one i can see how that would force people to be more self-conscious about presuppositions 
I guess the challenge would be, is that the only method and is that the best method? But I don't, I don't, I think that clearly there's something to that. I like that argument and I think there's something to it. Thanks. Um, yeah, I think I would just, um, would worry about the, the um, about what might happen if um, we are kind of uncritically empowering one theological worldview hmm. um by kind of masking it under the auspices of of history that that would be my my worry in that context let's 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 pause it there because <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the last word there um um because yeah we've both talked through our worldviews at length there um <laughs> And enjoyably so. I do. I do. I do like this stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's been great. Thank you. Um, any anything else in closing? I mean, we covered quite a bit of ground there. But if nothing else, um, why don't you just um, tell listeners where to follow you if they want to follow you on Twitter or website or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter. I, I'm not massively active. I've got to say, I um, I mainly just kind of say when I've had something published, which um, you know, is not as frequent as I would like but um so I'm at Roland's Johnny so just just my name but surname then last name then first name um if you want to reach out by email please feel free to you can find me on the St Melitus College website so that's um Melitus is M-I-L-L-I-T-U-S um my email address is just johnny.rolands at stmelitus.ac.uk so if anybody you know wants to get in touch I'm always really happy to to kind of have these conversations and to to chat with people. So, you know, feel free to reach out in whatever way is, is best for you. So, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Toby. No, no. Thank you for coming on. And thank you for, like, really um, going down the the historical methodology rabbit hole. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs>